You're listening to the Scotiabank Market Points Podcast. I'm your host, Greg White. Market Points is part of the Knowledge Capital series, a collection of audio, video, and written commentary from Scotiabank Global Banking and Markets leaders designed to provide you with timely insights and analysis. This week, the International Monetary Fund downgraded its forecast for 2020 to a 4.9% retraction in global growth. Coronavirus cases are re-escalating in new areas. Employment numbers continue to slide, yet retail sales are improving, and we've experienced significant gains in equity markets since the late March lows. So are things getting better or worse? Or is it too early to tell? On this episode of Market Points, Jean-Francois Perrault, Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at Scotiabank, provides his perspective on our economic prospects and some of the fundamental shifts we should prepare for. Hi, Jean-Francois. Thanks for being on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. Lots of mixed signals between the economic data and the equity markets. They seem to be in a tug of war between pessimism and optimism over our current situation. How are you making sense of all this starting with the rebound we've seen in equity markets that seems counterintuitive. Well, it does to some extent, but I think I think to get a good handle on that, you need to go a little bit further back in history and and perhaps, you know, closer to the peak of the crisis when we were seeing these very, very dramatic declines on a daily basis for equity markets. And the operating environment then was one in which we really didn't have a good sense of how things were going to work out from an economic perspective. We were, you know, starting the shutdowns. Uh, There's still a lot of turmoil in in in, in funding markets. Um, there was no sense that we knew whether or not the shutdowns were going to work. As a result of that, it was very difficult to assess whether or not there'd be a recovery sometime in the year. Fast forward a few weeks from then, and then a few weeks uh, going back now. Um, and it became clear that the containment efforts that were being uh, rolled out around the world were having their intended impact. And that is to say they were slowing the progression of the virus. They were flattening the curve. And as a result of that, uh, we started to have much greater confidence that there would be a rebound in economic activity in the later part of the year because the, you know, the medicine that we've been taking to try and control the virus was working to some degree. So that's, you know, helps explain part of the rebound in equity markets. And of course, underlying all of this was tremendous amounts of liquidity that were being pumped in by central banks. Recently, um, you know, the, the extent to which we've been able to maintain control of the viruses, you know, is a little bit more questionable. We're seeing, obviously, in the southern U.S. and in the western U.S., a pretty significant increase in, in the number of cases. That goes beyond simply, you know, those that are identified through, through more testing. And that, you know, uh, I think represents a pretty significant downside risk to the outlook. And I'm not sure markets have priced that in fully. Uh, because markets are still reasonably buoyant, still you know pretty optimistic about the outlook, and and, and in some sense they're right to to be that way, um, but there is uh, I think mounting evidence the downside risk associated with the virus in the second part of the year are uh, you know they're pretty clear and perhaps we might have underestimated those a little bit. So given those downside risks, how can businesses then best prepare in this environment? I think the first thing to keep in mind is. Um, you know, n- n- nobody's really got a huge amount of confidence in their forecasts. I and mean, the reality is that we are still dealing with a tremendously uncertain outlook. 
I mean, you know, we can make a good argument for a second half rebound and that continuing in 2021, but the reality is that the virus itself remains reasonably poorly understood and that represents a big risk of the outlook. So, you know, the point of departure is uncertainty is high and it's going to remain high for quite a while. So firms have to adapt to that and firms are adapting to that. Um, but, you know, it means uh, that, for instance, the return to normal kind of business conditions is probably going to be quite a quite a lengthy thing, you know, maybe till late 2021 or early 2022, by the time we've got, you know, a sufficiently good handle on virus-related uh, uh, disruptions, uh, by the time we kind of figured out, you know, what other damage might have occurred in the economy as a result of this, you know, whether firms are going to go bankrupt or not, or households are going to come back to uh, to the table. Um, so it's just it's it's just an environment where I think. The, the the focus is going to be on trying to um, set up businesses and business plans and strategies um, optimizing around a tremendously high level of uncertainty relative to what we might have been used to, uh, well, just three months ago. If 2022 is a realistic possibility for return to normal, have central banks run out of runway room with respect to monetary policy? Would we just be looking at uh, fiscal stimulus programs to carry us through this? Well, I think, I mean, th this is the kind of circumstance that is best designed for fiscal policy anyways. So, I mean, we'll get, I can get to the, to the monetary policy issue in a second, but the reality is, you know, the type of economic uh, event that we're dealing with now basically requires um, financing to be provided directly to households and firms of some sort, whether, whether it's a cash payment, whether it's a loan. And that, yeah, certainly in the Canadian context, is is you know is basically the job of the federal government or the provincial government. In the U.S., things are a little bit more a little bit more mixed because there's this you know the Federal Reserve has basically been doing fiscal policy as well in in in, in many ways. So there's this blending of what are traditional responsibilities or traditional kind of demarcations between the role of fiscal policy and monetary policy, which is which is kind of muddied the story a little bit in the U.S., but generally speaking, you know, if we need further policy support down the line, you know, if the virus comes back in the fall or something, I would imagine that the first line of response continues to be on the fiscal side because they effectively can, you know, put money in people's pocketbooks right away and, and either help them manage their finances or help them continue spending to some extent. On the monetary policy side, um, you know, you're right that we, we you know, in in a lot of countries, the rate is basically as low as it's going to be from a policy perspective. So central banks have been kind of undertaking these unconventional approaches to various things, quantitative easing in, in, in some countries. Um, you know, Governor Polos didn't want to quite call it quantitative easing Canada, but effectively quantitative easing Canada as well. And here the idea is simply that if we if we do find ourselves needing more interest rate support, so you know, more uh, you know, easier financing conditions. Um, it's pretty clear that central banks, certainly North America, aren't going to take their policy rates negative. I mean, the governors of both central banks have been as clear as they can possibly be on that, including the, the new governor, Tiff Macklem in Canada. What's much more likely, I think, if, if policy support is required, it will be you know, a ramping up of quantitative easing. So a ramping up of measures by central banks designed to bring down interest rates up the curve. They're already very low, but they're not at zero. So they, they, they could go lower. Uh, and that would be, I think, probably secondary to more fiscal uh, but that's the kind of that's the kind of intervention I, I would see coming out of central banks certainly in the north american space just more attempts at yield curve control than we've seen so far on the consumer side of things you know as we see people unemployed 
not really being able to have disposable income to spend uh, and this, the government support essentially just providing basic, uh, basic requirements, money for basic requirements. Eventually, do you see a domino effect if this lasts too long, hitting businesses that up until now have been a little bit more uh, resilient? It's certainly possible. Uh, you know, we've seen, without any question, a very significant increase in unemployment rate in, Can in the unemployment rate in Canada. Uh, we've seen, you know, roughly 8 million applicants for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit in Canada. So there clearly are lots of folks uh, that have been affected by the virus from an employment perspective. There's no question about that. Um, but, you know, the way the government support program has been designed for households has been really targeted. Uh, it's been pretty generous, and it's been and it's and it's it's particularly generous for folks that are in the lower end of the income scale. So folks that are in the retail sector, folks that are in seasonal industries, um, you know, food accommodation, travel, and, and the income replacement rate for those folks is actually quite high. Uh, in fact, what we've seen partly as a result of uh, of this is is you know the payments have been sufficiently high that um, deposits in banks have been rising. Uh, obviously, it reflects some degree of, of, of consumption compression, um, but it does speak to the, the how extensive the government support is. Now, the question is, um, you know, when is that government support going to be withdrawn, and is that going to leave households high and dry? And here, I think I think there's a, there's a there's a there's a view out there that the government is going to unwind things prematurely, and I and I don't subscribe to that view. I think. Um, I think you know if we find ourselves with still high unemployment rate in a couple of months, in a few months, um, I think you're going to see those extent those those employment benefits, uh, emergency response benefits, you know, remain active until we're well beyond this. And obviously, that means it's expensive fiscally. But what I do think it means is um, that households are going to find that they are more supported by the government than perhaps they fear at this point in time will be the case. And that and that ultimately is is is, is great news from a household perspective. Now, obviously, um, we have seen declines in 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 uh, retail spending. There's no question about that. Part of that is because folks weren't allowed to leave their house for a while. Part of that is because you have you know lots of unemployment. Uh, lots of unemployed folks, you know, uh, reduced confidence, uh, folks just wanting to be more cautious with their with their finances in a period of extreme uncertainty. But we've nevertheless, since the peak of the crisis, seen a pretty dramatic improvement in in retail spending, uh, and that speaks partly to you know pent up demand. The household, there's only so long a household can go without purchasing a, a type of good that it views as essential. Uh, but it also speaks to um, you know I think. What is still, generally speaking, the view of, of of a lot of Canadians, probably most Canadians, that you know the COVID situation is a temporary situation, and that they can they can kind of weather this. Uh, and one way to one way to contextualize that is is to look at the labor force survey in Canada. So the labor force survey does this interesting thing. For the last couple of months, it's asked Canadians, um, you know, basically, how do they feel about their financial situation. Um, you know, do they feel that they are under financial distress? And about a third of Canadians have said that they are, uh, which is which is a pretty high number. The thing with that, though, is if we go back to 2016 and, uh, uh, you know, another survey the StatsCan publishes on a you know, multi-year basis every four years, I think it is, um, which basically asks households the same question. Um, households were back then saying about the same thing. About a third of households were saying they were in financial 
difficulty. So uh, households have, you know, remain reasonably, um, reasonably optimistic about their financial situation, despite what is clearly an extremely difficult economic environment. I imagine it's an extremely difficult environment for economists in general as well. Has this changed the way you forecast and how you look at economic problems? It, it absolutely has. I mean, you know, econometricians or economists that use kind of empirical ways of forecasting essentially rely on history to draw out inferences about the future, right? So historical relationships matter, historical correlations matter, um, and you use those to, you know, put a bit of context around your forecast. The reality that we're dealing with now is we are dealing essentially with a historical event, you know, an event that is so large in terms of economic impact, an event that is so different in terms of policy response on the part of governments that we have very little, you know, our, our historical toolkit is 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 quite ill-equipped to help us, you know, make sense of, uh, you know, incorporate this in, in kind of a forward-looking forecast. So we find ourselves... Um, you know, going back into our history books a little bit more, you know, looking at the, for instance, the Great Depression or periods of extreme economic turmoil, like, you know, pandemics, natural disasters in some countries, try and get a sense of how those individuals reacted in, in, in those types of circumstances. Um, but it does mean that we find ourselves using um, a lot more judgment, a lot more gut feelings than we are used to. Uh, just because the nature of the economic threat that we are dealing with is is basically medical in nature. It's biological in nature. Even the medical community doesn't have a great sense of how this is going to evolve. And if you don't have a great sense of how that's going to evolve, it makes it very difficult to put an economic forecast around that. So that's 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 extremely different from 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 past kind of approaches of forecasting. Now we've adapted in a lot of ways. Obviously, we're looking at medical information much more so than we used to in the past. Um, we are also looking at high-frequency data much more so than we are doing in the past. So, for instance, Scotiabank, I mean, we are a very large Canadian financial institution. We have access to transactions data for, from our clients uh, in all industries and in all walks of life. And we can look to that data to give us a sense as to how we are uh, evolving in real time. Um, to give us, you know, more comfort that, for instance, the track that we think that we're on is in fact the right track. And, and so there's an adaptation that's occurring in terms of the types of data that we incorporate in, in, in formal views to try and, you know, triangulate as much as possible using as many different sources of information as we can to ensure that we, you know, we, we're pretty confident that our view is, is on the right track, even though there's a huge amount of uncertainty around that. When you have been looking at things lately, are you anticipating then uh, a permanent shift in some s structural elements of our economy, uh, labor force, for instance, and how uh, how can we adapt to the coming changes? Well, I mean, it's very clear that we're so one of the challenges in dealing with a shock like this is there's a demand element to it. So, you know, folks will want to purchase less things and firms will invest less because they're worried about the outlook. And there's a supply element to this as well. So, you know, folks will be more hesitant to work, for instance. Uh, firms will be more hesitant to deploy capital. Um, you know, they may they may you know retool their plants. They may retool their production processes to uh, value safety over 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 efficiency or over over capacity. So, you know, this is unquestionably leading to um, a you know what we call in economic terms a supply shock. And and part of this is 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 clearly on 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 the labor side. So you've got things, for instance, like 
in the short run, perhaps because of the generosity of the employment response benefit, um, there are individuals who uh, are basically, you know, making roughly the same amount with the benefit than they would when they were working. Uh, and for those individuals, or for a fraction of those individuals, you know, the, 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 the idea that they would go to work and basically make the same amount of money they're making by staying at home is not particularly appealing. So, you know, you can count some of those workers out of the labor force for a time. You can also think about workers that have um, young children who can't find daycare. Uh, and those workers, you know, one of the family members is going to have to remain home and, and watch the children for a period of time. And that precludes them from coming back into the labor market. And uh, of course, you've got you've got folks that are just that are just worried about the public health dimension of this all and 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 will, you know, take more time off and and um, be a little bit more cautious in terms of their their kind of workplace interactions. And that too represents a bit of a labor supply shock. So as a result of that, you have um, you have you're likely to have less people wanting to engage in labor force until we have much greater clarity, uh, you know, about a cure or a vaccine for the virus than than we certainly saw uh, pre-crisis, and that that is going to make it a little bit more difficult for firms to to you know go back to normal levels of operating activity because. If you don't have the labor, obviously there's there's limits to what you can produce. Um, and the same thing is obviously occurring in in the business side. I mean, there are industries where um, we can anticipate that demand for their particular goods is going to be affected for the foreseeable future, right? You can think of a travel, obviously. You can think of some types of retailers. You can think of restaurants. You can take uh, you know barbers and hairdressers and things that require a fair amount of, of social interaction. Um, those are you know that segment of our economy is probably going to be smaller for the next year or two uh, than, we're, than we're used to experiencing. And there's a question as to how, you know, how those industries kind of move forward in a post-COVID world and whether or not, you know, we as Canadians or we as global citizens will have uh, altered our consumption pattern in such a way that, you know, even post-COVID, these industries have a bit of a hard time. When thinking about the bright side, uh, do you feel that technology played such a positive role in preventing what could have been a much more disastrous economic outcome? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, you know, there's been a lot said about AI and the rise of robots and how that's going to, um, you know, displace workers and the challenges of, of managing workers in that kind of environment. I think what we've experienced with, with COVID uh, in the last, a couple of months now is a very about as clear a demonstration of the benefits of technology as you're ever going to get in that um, uh, the extent to which folks have been able to work from home the extent to which we've been able to you know shift our purchasing patterns uh, using technology the extent to which firms have been able to to manage this through data analytics um, it's all the function, obviously, all a result of, of how uh, important technology has become in managing our, our lives and our economy. So, I mean, that's that's the starting point, which is, you know, things would have been, I think, much, 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 much worse had we not been as technologically savvy and advanced and agile as as we have. Now, of course, going forward, um, you know, there there still is going to be this concern that we're going to, you know, technology will crowd out workers. Um, it's been it's been around for you know decades now, and it's going to continue to be the case for a while. 
Um, you know, I think I think one thing to keep in mind from that perspective is obviously, you know, setting aside COVID for a little bit and, and the extraordinary nature of that of that development. Um, you know, if you go back to surveys of small businesses over the last two years in Canada pre-COVID, the number one constraint that these firms were noting was lack of available labor. I mean, we had been running extremely tight labor markets in Canada and the U.S. as well, but even tighter in Canada. Uh, such that you know the the lack of available labor was actually an impediment to business growth, and as a result of that, you obviously uh, businesses were adapting partly by adopting technology. Um, so as we think about this going forward, if we come back to a period of time where the labor market returns to you know historical levels of tightness, which is what we experienced over the last couple of years, uh, which I don't think is unreasonable to expect, say over the next year or so. Um, you know, we're, we're like, again, the, the, the emphasis will be on, on firms using technology to, um, you know, meet their production needs, but it's going to occur in an environment where, you, you know, there already is a, a very, very tight labor market. Now, of course, one of the, one of the consequences of all this, and, and this is where there's an opportunity related to COVID is, um, as you, as you continue on the technological transformation side, you know, displaced workers need to be retrained. And clearly, uh, because of the supply dimension to this, because of the labor stock dimension to this, uh, there is going to be a need to retrain a tremendous amount of people um, that are in industries that are likely to be a bit smaller going forward. And that, again, will obviously, technology will help will help make that happen. Um, but it's likely to it's likely to lead to a situation where you know, some of those workers shift to um, industries that are, you know, more likely to be uh, sustainable going forward, or more, have kind of a more dynamic path going forward, and those are likely to be again industries that are that are uh, technologically based. That was Jean-François Perrault, senior vice president and chief economist at Scotiabank. You can find more thought-leading content from Scotiabank on our website at gbm.scotiabank.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter at ScotiabankGBM, as well as our LinkedIn showcase page under Scotiabank Global Banking and Markets. Please refer to our legal disclosures on our website. Thanks for listening.